1: Welcome to another edition of Legal Talk Network and Workers' Comp Matters. My name is Alan Pierce, and the question we're going to be talking about today is actually a title of a paper written by our guest. The title is An Ongoing Debate, Whether Student-Athletes Should Be Considered Employees Entitled to Workers' Compensation. As I mentioned, I'm Alan Pierce. I'm a workers' compensation lawyer. And our guest today is Taylor O'Toole. Before I introduce Taylor to our audience... I want to remind our listeners that uh, this podcast here on the Legal Talk Network is brought to you by CasePacer.com, case management system for the busy trial attorney. To learn more, go to CasePacer.com and also PINow.com. If you need a licensed private investigator wherever you are in the country, go to PINow.com for your investigative needs. As I mentioned a moment ago, my guest is not yet a lawyer. She will be, and I predict she'll be a very good one. Taylor O'Toole is a graduate of University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. She is finishing her second year at Pennsylvania State University Law School. And at Penn State Law, she has earned several awards in classes, including applied legal analysis and writing, legal research and copyrights, and she also works as a research assistant for Professor Jeffrey Scott. She serves as the Executive Articles Editor for the Penn State Law Review, as well as the President of the Sports and Entertainment Law Society and Treasurer of Phi Alpha Delta Law Fraternity. As I mentioned, she wrote an essay, an article, for submission to the College of Workers' Compensation Lawyers, in their student writing essay competition, and she was the winner. She was presented with her award and a scholarship in her name to Penn State Law. And she took on a rather interesting topic, and that is whether or not student athletes should be considered employees entitled to workers' compensation. So Taylor, having said all of that, welcome to Workers' Comp Matters.
2: Thank you so much. I'm
1: so happy to be here. Well, I want to start to dive into your paper because it is interesting because it not only answers the question for today, which is whether student-athletes are considered employees entitled to workers' comp. In fact, why don't we get that out of the way right now? If somebody were to ask you, my son, my daughter was injured playing Division I sports and can no longer work and incurred medical expense, can she or he collect workers' compensation benefits? What is the likely answer to that question?
2: Based on the precedent that we have right now, that is going to be a no. You are not entitled to workers' compensation.
1: All right. And we could easily just end the show right there and say, "Sorry, sorry, sorry, ladies and gentlemen. But this begs a broader question, and that is... What are the rights, obligations, responsibilities of the college or the university to its student athlete? Because, you know, let's face it, this is big business. I mean, we could be talking about the local community college and the, the you know, the the pickup informal sporting activities. But when you're talking about the Big Ten or the Pac-8, division one football or basketball feeder sports or programs that lead into professional athletics. And we all know the the numbers, it's probably well fewer than 5% or maybe even less than that of any of these student athletes actually make it into the pros. A lot of issues come up. Now, you began your paper with a discussion of the background, looking into the history of the NCAA, the National Collegiate Athletic Association, and the concept or definition of amateurism and how that's changed over the years. So why don't we maybe start there. Take us back in time to maybe an earlier day, and what did the NCAA and or the concept of amateur sports, how did that evolve into where we are today?
2: Yeah, so college sports have obviously been around mostly since colleges really have been around. So in the 1800s, colleges were there and they were having their sports and different sports were developing. But it really began with President Teddy Roosevelt. He saw that there was an issue with intercollegiate athletics. There were so much cheating, really bad injuries and things like that. So he really called for the creation of a national organization to govern the intercollegiate athletics. So in 1906 is when... The NCAA, under its previous name, Intercollegiate Athletic Association of the United States, was formed by 62 member institutions and since then it has grown to presently encompass more than 1,000 institutions and more than 400,000 athletes. So it's really developed over time as first a discussion group and rulemaking body in order to combat some of those issues that Teddy Roosevelt recognized with the injuries and cheating. And has gradually expanded its influence over more sports and groups and things, but also to have greater sanctioning authority over using their rules. Because some people might say even now that NCAA is a toothless organization. They can't back up what they're saying, but really in the 1950s they created the Committee on Infractions in order to be able to give some teeth to their rules and things like that. And now... We know today that the NCAA is huge and encompasses all the inter athletics. So it's really necessary for the background of this
1: topic. Yeah, and as we've watched this develop as spectators or casual observers of the growth of sports, the one thing that is maintained constant throughout this is that in exchange for being recruited and accepting an offer to matriculate in a university, What the student athlete gets basically has remained essentially the same for the last hundred years. He or she gets a scholarship that basically the tuition and perhaps a room and board and some other incidentals are covered. And of course, sometimes it gets some degree of notoriety when some universities or colleges go beyond that and some of the violations occur in providing things other than scholarships. There may be some work study that's allowed. So in terms of how these student athletes are remunerated for not just the glory for Old Ivy, is it still primarily just the recipient of waiver of tuition and room and board and maybe some work study that they get in exchange for the hours? they log in on the practice and playing fields
2: yeah I would say that that's large majority of what it is for scholarship wise like yes there are athletic scholarships and Many student-athletes do get those athletic scholarships, but there are also a good percentage that do not get any kind of scholarship, and they just participate in the sport because they want to. They walked onto the sport or they were recruited, but like right now the NCAA has a lot of restrictions on how many scholarship teams are and universities are allowed to give out. So not every student-athlete at a university can get a scholarship. So for the scholarship players who do get payment, I guess, for their room and board, tuition, things like that, That's definitely a thing that happens. But for the non-scholarship players, I would say they get a little bit of consideration for their play. Like, you know, student-athletes get a bunch of gear. They get gear to work out in and to wear around campus. They also get some of the perks of being a student-athlete. Maybe that's a special dining hall or a special meal plan or something like that. They get little things, but not necessarily always scholarship.
1: And that really gets us to the tradition of amateurism, and of course, the root word of amateur is the word uh, ama or amau, uh, the word love. And I think the word amateur came out of the love for the game, of the love for the sport. But tell us a little bit about a lawsuit that came about a number of years ago. With the University of Oklahoma, the NCAA versus the Board of Regents of the University of Oklahoma, where student athletes tried to challenge the tradition of amateurism, keeping in mind that that gear that you talk about are oftentimes manufactured by large corporations that make a lot of money by having the athlete's name in the back of the jersey. Yeah. And that athlete, because he or she is an amateur, is prohibited by the NCAA or by other organizations for participating in the profit from that. So tell us a little bit about the significance of that particular lawsuit that went to the Supreme Court.
2: Yeah, so that decision in the Board of Regents case was extremely important in my sports law class I took this semester. We talked about it probably every day because it really comes down to every college sport. A lot of college sport cases all come down to this. The Supreme Court In this decision, like the student-athletes were challenging the NCAA under antitrust laws, which is a vehicle that is used oftentimes by student-athletes to challenge the NCAA's practices. And here the NCAA placed great emphasis on the tradition of amateurism and how that's been a pillar of the ncaa since its inception and how important that is and how that is really what gives the ncaa its character and the supreme court was unwilling to they wanted to give any ncaa decision that was supposed to protect the tradition of amateurism they were giving deference to ncaa on that because it is such an important tradition for them, and circuit courts have really followed suit. And even though in the NCAA versus Board of Regents case, maybe the NCAA lost, if you want to put it in really layman's terms, it's really important that it showed the tradition of amateurism and how important that is to protect and how much difference the NCAA can get to protect that tradition.
1: And, uh, you know, if I could follow further on that, because in your paper, you go from the Oklahoma case to a more recent decision going back about a year and a half ago, which was the O'Bannon case, O'Bannon versus NCAA. And in that case, tell us about the underlying facts. What were the student-athlete plaintiffs seeking compensation for in the o'bannon case
2: yeah so in the o'bannon case the student athletes were looking for compensation for the use of their name image and likeness in video games so you know we have like the madden football games and fifa and things like that so when the ncaa was trying to create their own version of those with college athletes and the student athletes wanted to be compensated for the use of their whole likeness in these video games and the district court The district court was very deferential to the student-athletes. They ended up saying that, oh, the student-athletes should be granted $5,000 or up to $5,000 a year for the use of their name, image, and likeness in these video games. And then the Ninth Circuit ended up reversing that decision, saying that to give student-athletes any compensation over the cost of attendance would be a violation of the tradition of amateurism, which the Supreme Court has upheld. And then Interestingly enough, both the NCAA and the student-athletes ended up submitting writs to the Supreme Court, wanting to be heard, and both of them were denied. So that gives me the idea that the Supreme Court agreed with how the Ninth Circuit gave deference to the NCAA and its practices in protecting the tradition of amateurism there.
1: You also walked us through some other cases. Again, we're kind of leading up to the discussion about workers' comp, but in order to be eligible for workers' comp, there must be an employer-employee relationship. And it seems to me that these student-athletes, at least as far as the institutions in the NCAA are concerned, are not treating them as employees. So this was tested again under the fair labor standards act there was also was there not a question there as to whether these student athletes should be considered employees for labor standards not just workers compensation but other rights that come to people that produce a labor for which somebody else profits so tell us a little bit about what the 7th circuit also did in 2016 under the fair labor standards
2: act yeah so the 7th circuit found that the tradition of amateurism again was to be a very significant factor in determining that student-athletes were not employees under the Fair Labor Standards Act. And they said that although amateurism isn't explicitly accounted for in the economic realities test that they used, that the tradition of amateurism should be taken into consideration when making that determination for many of the reasons I stated earlier with the Board of Regents case
1: especially. Mm -hmm. And again, in terms of athletes organizing under the auspices of the NLRB or the National Labor Relations Board. Talk to us a little bit about the Northwestern University football players' attempt to utilize the NLRB by petitioning that board to be considered employees of Northwestern
2: University. Yeah, so the football players at Northwestern University wanted to be considered employees so that they could unionize, and the NLRB ended up denying their petition to be considered employees for the institution. From what I understand about the case, it seems like the NLRB really didn't want to get involved because their initial like, regional director issued the decision finding that Northwestern football players that received scholarships were employees, and then the NLRB granted review of the decision, And then subsequently, the NLRB received an influx of briefs arguing that the NLRB should consider its discretion in declining the jurisdiction over this case. And they ultimately agreed with that by saying that they didn't really want to get involved because it would just create a massive instability in the labor relations if they were to do that considering that Northwestern is a private institution, one of only less than 20 in the football bowl subdivision with the division one football bowl subdivision. So their decision would only affect those private schools. And it would just cause massive havoc, really, to make a decision based on just these private school scholarship receiving football players when it could have implications over many.
1: You know, I'm glad you mentioned that because I never appreciated the legal distinction in this context of employment law or labor law between a public university and a private institution. And uh, that seems to be one of the major factors here is the public nature of a uh, state institution funded by taxpayers as opposed to a private institution. Before we go to a break and really start to focus on the workers' comp aspects of this. Tell us what, if anything, that the student athlete has to sign or what writings are there for either he or she to accept a scholarship or participate in an NCAA activity that might somehow delineate their rights or obligations or limitation of their rights? Are there forms that they do sign that certify or indicate what their legal status is?
2: Yeah. So the NCAA manual, which you can imagine is very Thorough, very long and thorough, requires that a student athlete sign a student athlete statement at the outset of every season. This certifies their eligibility while they put information about ethics, recruiting, financial aid, amateurism. They give all this information in the student athlete statement and they sign at the bottom of every page in order to certify that that information is correct and that certifies that they are eligible to participate in that coming season so it really binds them to not only what they told the ncaa and their university is true but also that they have read and understood the manual which could be difficult seeing as how big and comprehensive it is
1: right so let's sort of take a uh, member of a women's softball team for a division one school and she gets significantly injured in a game she's a scholarship student she's on a full boat scholarship she gets hurt. Her softball career is ended. She incurs medical expense. And let's let's assume she has an injury that will linger or impact her ability to earn wages, even in a non-softball activity. What happens to her? Does she lose her scholarship? Are her medical bills covered? Are they covered so long as she's a student? What What happens to that individual that gets hurt on the playing field for Old Ivy? Yeah. So
2: from what I understand, first, she would not lose her scholarship for that year because the NCAA has placed a number of safeguards in the manual which prevent minus a couple of exceptions, prevent you from losing your scholarship within that year of if you get injured, like the softball player in our example, or if you get suspended from the team for another reason or anything like that, you would maintain your scholarship for at least that year. I assume that there are other ways in order for her to try to keep it for more than just that year, maybe by becoming a manager of the team or something like that. And then it all, it all kind of depends. Like you know, the NCAA has a number of insurance programs in place where you are eligible for them based on certain characteristics that you might have. So the catastrophic insurance program is for someone who is catastrophically injured. Usually that means some kind of disability or something long-lasting. So that is an option that's by the university so that would help cover some of the medical bills and things. And then. If she was a exceptional student-athlete, so then there's the exceptional student-athlete disability insurance program, typically is reserved for football players, baseball players, men's and women's basketball players, and men's ice hockey players. It's typically reserved for those student-athletes who are anticipated to go within, be recruited by a team within the first or second rounds of their respective drafts. But if she was such an exceptional softball player that she was potential to go to the Olympics or have a professional career as a softball player in whatever capacity that might be, she might be eligible for this exceptional student-athlete disability insurance, which if she were to have signed up for that and gotten injured, it would not only cover her medical expenses at the time and future medical expenses, but also protect her for future loss of earnings as a professional athlete due to that
1: disability. So we're really talking about a small subset of even college athletes. We're talking about the exceptional, the first stringers, or the first stringers who are likely to be drafted. At this point, I think we're going to take a short break. And when we come back, we are going to continue our discussion with Taylor O'Toole. Case Pacer
0: is the leading practice management software for today's workers' comp and plaintiff's attorney. Named one of the fastest growing companies in America by Inc. magazine, we've given attorneys and their staff the ability to work from anywhere on any device. By automating workflows and streamlining non revenue generating tasks, Casepacer enables firms to grow their practice at minimal cost. To see Casepacer in action, contact us today at casepacer.com. including workers' compensation and surveillance. Find a pre-screened private investigator today. Visit
1: www.pinow.com. Welcome back, Workers' Calm Matters on the Legal Talk Network with our guest, Taylor O'Toole, talking about the broader issue of student athletes and what happens to them if they get hurt at work or if they seek to be somehow considered more than just a student athlete, but an employee or in some other category of relationship to their institution. This is, however, a workers' comp themed show. And at the outset, of course, Taylor told us that under current case law, there is yet no precedent for an injured athlete injured in the scope and course of athletic pursuits for his or her university to be covered under workers' comp laws, but that's not for lack of want of trying. Is that correct, Taylor? People have tried? Oh,
2: yes, definitely people have tried.
1: (laughs) All right. And what are the theories? Why don't we run down the theories thus far unsuccessful that proponents of covering these athletes under workers' comp laws, how did they advance their argument?
2: Yeah, so obviously workers' comp laws are State specific, so I'm just going to talk more generally about what courts have found or not found to be persuasive. So, first being the right to control, courts have really found this to be very important, and a lot of proponents of finding them to be employees would point to the really regimented, strict, and time consuming schedules that student athletes that are required of them or seemingly required of them also that universities invest a lot of money into the facilities that the athletes use and the equipment that they use. Some studies have shown that student athletes tend to put an average of 43.3 hours per week into their sport. So, you know, that's kind of like full time if you think about it. But a lot of courts have not found that to be persuasive, saying that this is more of an exercise of control rather than a right to control. And because athletes have pretty much universally been saying that they choose to follow the schedule and are not required to by any means. Like They follow these same schedules that their high school coaches have put out the years before, and it was because of their desire to participate in the sport and not necessarily a requirement that they do these things. Second being a right to discipline or discharge. So uh, proponents of finding them to be employees have pointed to that coaches regularly discipline the student-athletes, whether that be things like running sprints or, I don't know, other things that they might do, and they can discharge players if they don't follow the coach's rules, but courts, again, have not found that to be persuasive because, like I had mentioned before, The NCAA has safeguards in place that oftentimes prevent the universities or coaches from terminating the scholarships that they have. So it's not really much of a punishment if they're still getting the scholarship and the theoretical benefit of being a student-athlete that they don't have to do the work. Another one being payment of wages and dependents. I find this one to be a little bit more on the fence personally just because it depends largely on what the state considers to be wages, on whether they would think the scholarship would fall under wages or not. So that's really a state-specific type of question. But that also ends up begging the question of, should scholarship athletes be treated as employees and non-scholarship athletes not? So that's something to consider. Another factor being whether the employee or the alleged employee or student-athlete's participation is integral to the employer's business Courts have found it in the past that athletics were independent of the university's primary business of being in academics. In my research and things, I have found that to be more of an old way of thinking.
1: Yeah, things have certainly changed, especially among the more larger and the more elite institutions.
2: Oh, yes, definitely. Like universities who are very successful in sports, if Alabama is winning the football national championship every year, and UNC, we won the national championship in basketball last year, that tends to increase the number of applicants that the school is getting and then making the applications from more qualified candidates, which ultimately boosts the academic institution in in their primary business. So I feel like nowadays it's becoming more in favor of finding that they're employees, but then when you look at the intent of the parties, I find that to weigh heavily in favor of finding that they're not employees because the student athletes and the universities, evidence points to that they're not going into their relationship with the intent of being considered employees. For example, the NCAA and the university recognize the student-athlete's amateur status. An amateur is someone who's not getting paid, theoretically. So to recognize that status and consider the employees would kind of be counterintuitive. And also student-athletes aren't declaring their scholarships as income on their tax returns. And if they were including that as income, then that would be something to consider.
1: All right. Well, you know, you've identified the five most important or frequently cited criteria that are employed in the context of workers' comp and other areas of employment law to determine whether a person is considered an employee of an employer or not, the right to control, the method and manner of payment, right to discharge, intent of the parties, et cetera. And clearly the case law thus far, while arguments can be made about each and every one of these five criteria, it's clear that this particular relationship of going out on the sports field for your university is not quite the same as going to work in a shop or factory and punching a clock. So if we kind of leave aside for the moment the fact that the traditional criteria of employment status, which comes from case law, comes from statutes, or it comes from something as broad as the restatement of torts, where they set forth the different criteria, You've also identified the public policy arguments, you know, and you sort of mentioned at the outset Teddy Roosevelt and Teddy Roosevelt also in the 1908, 1910 era also saw from a public policy standpoint injuries on the job in New York where he was governor were not adequately compensated or were not compensated at all, so that he was a major proponent of workers' compensation. And I would think that if Teddy Roosevelt were around today or others looking at this as you have from a public policy perspective, I think we have to look at the fact that hundreds of thousands of able-bodied young men and women are going out there and they're risking life and limb for their university or college, which aside from the glory and the perks of getting increased attendance, making a ton of money on this. So from a public policy perspective, kind of lead us through what we should be looking at. If not workers' comp, should there not be some other better mechanism of treating this student-athlete who suffers the misfortune of simply getting hurt, doing something that he or she loves, but also doing it for the benefit of, you know, this bigger institution.
2: Yeah, I personally think that at that point it becomes a matter of civil liability and trying, if it was some error on the part of the coaching staff or other agents of the university that could have led to a tragic incident or injury or something like that then it becomes a case of maybe they can receive some kind of compensation via negligence claims or other torts in order to do that. And I can't think of another way right now, like while it might be upsetting that someone might be putting themselves at risk on a daily basis in order to perform for their university, Workers' comp, it just doesn't seem to be the way because it's so voluntary. You don't have to be a student-athlete if you don't want to be a student-athlete. A lot of that, like I mentioned before, student-athletes become that because they are passionate about their sport and they want to continue that part of their life. Maybe they want to be a professional, but maybe they just want to continue playing their sport. So I think that civil liability, if there was some wrongdoing or negligence or something on the part of the university or its agents, but other than that, workers' comp
1: just doesn't seem to be the answer. Yeah, I have to agree with you. You know, part of the bargain of workers' comp is that the purported employer is immune or cannot be sued. And of course, most of the injuries that might occur on the playing field, probably for the most part, probably the vast majority, do not occur in the setting of the college doing something wrong. Perhaps there could have been some maybe poor playing conditions that maybe there was a a loose board in the basketball court that somebody uh, fell over that was due to lack of maintenance. But those cases are few and far between. It would seem to me, and you touch on it a bit in your paper, that the existing insurance programs, the catastrophic injury compensation package, or the elite athlete benefit package, while, it's a good start. Perhaps that's the where we need to go. We need to try to find another system. You know, I guess we're trying to to make student athletes employees for the purposes of workers' comp, I guess is kind of like taking an oval peg and trying to fit it into a round hole. it It almost fits, but it doesn't fit. So then perhaps there should be something else because there are countless people every year that uh, suffer disabling and costly injuries for which the financial remuneration is either markedly limited or non-existent. So having said that, if somebody wanted to get a copy of your paper, first of all, you could contact me at apierce at com. But how could somebody reach out and, and contact you, Taylor, for more information on this very interesting
2: topic? Yeah. So they can email me. My email is taylorotool4 at gmail.com. So Taylor being O T O O L E, the number four at gmail.com.
1: No apostrophe?
2: No apostrophe in the email. <laughs>
1: All right. Well, Taylor, I want to thank you very much for being a guest on Worker Scott Matters, number one. Number two, for your passion and diligence in, in writing this paper, which I, I found to be eye-opening and thought-provoking. And third, most importantly, best of luck on year three and becoming successfully employed. in I think your chosen field, you'd like to stay in the sports uh, law arena, as I understand it. I would. All right. And I think you'll do quite well. So for those of you listening, thank you for joining us on this edition of Workers' Comp Matters. Please join us next time and go out and make it a day that matters. Thank you.
0: Thanks for listening to Workers' Comp Matters today on the Legal Talk Network, hosted by Attorney Alan S. Pierce, where we try to make a difference in workers' comp legal cases for people injured at work. Be sure to listen to other Workers' Comp Matters shows on the Legal Talk Network, your only choice for legal talk.